0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Our guest today is a bona fide sex symbol, movie star, and peace advocate. She's also brilliant. She entered college at 15, and at 19, the legendary agent Eileen Ford discovered her and quickly made her a top model, putting her on the cover of every fashion magazine of the day. Not long after, she launched her film career, performing small parts in Wes Craven and Woody Allen films. As an actress, she really hit her stride when she appeared opposite Arnold Schwarzenegger in the sci-fi action thriller Total Recall, and then transformed into a bona fide sex symbol superstar in the erotic thriller Basic Instinct. But it was her breathtaking performance in Martin Scorsese's Casino that earned her an Oscar nomination and a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress. Her work with the Nobel Prize Academy has earned her recognition and awards for her tireless work. There's so much more to this lady than meets the eye. So join us as we rewind to the beginning and Say It Forward with this smart, sexy actress, humanitarian, and mother, Sharon Stone.
1: I uh, subscribed to Say It Forward last night and started listening to stories on this (laughs) podcast.
0: My whole reason for doing this is that I know amazing people like you. And I've had an opportunity to get to know you, and you have such an amazing story. And to have an opportunity to tell our listeners your story from the beginning to where we are today, and look at your journey. Seriously, it's just amazing You know, amazing I'm writing journey. a book.
1: Well, I've been writing it for quite some time, but I'm actually seriously writing it now. I've gotten an agent and a publisher and everything, and... Um it's really hard when you look back over such an active life to figure out what you put in and what you leave out. It's been such an extraordinary life, such a big adventure. And I've lived all over the world and done so many different kinds of things that the acting, the thing that people probably know me the best for is not, not... an amphor. Yeah, that's I mean, those are just some of the things yeah. that I've done. Not really even the acting is probably not even the biggest Aspect of my life
0: now. When I think of you, I think in terms of you as a humanitarian in the truest sense of the word. Oh, a mother, you. a decent human being. Oh, I have the human. greatest
1: kids. I was so blessed with my kids, and I believe that we know who we are um, from quite an early age, and that the more we we peel back to our core selves, the better. And when we start to get lost, I think we really need to sit down and think about our core self. And if I look back at letters I wrote when I was young, that's helpful, or drawings that I've made, or reread a book that I read when I was young and look at it again from another perspective, or movie. You watch movies that came about when you were a young person, and then you watch them now when you're... 40 years later, and you identify with a different character yeah. in them, for mm-hmm. example. It's
0: interesting that you said that. I was at the movies the other day with my husband, and I saw a promo for the 25th anniversary of Schindler's List, which they're putting in the theaters at Christmas time this year. And I remember seeing that film, and I realized that my children never saw that film. Of course. You know, your children never saw that film. There's whole generations of kids that have never seen that film. And to talk about a film and where you are to I mean, so I was so happy to see it coming. Well, we did. I, um, I
1: self-financed uh, and produced a film about the last uh, surviving Holocaust survivor in these last couple of years. We've had it at all these wonderful independent film festivals all over the world. We just came back from winning the. Paris Film Festival, with his film called An Undeniable Voice, um, about Sam Harris, who went on to start the Chicago Holocaust Museum in Skokie. And from that interview that we did of him, we made an extraordinary little documentary that's just been the little engine that could, every time we think, okay, we're done showing it, we get invited to another film festival. And we're trying to put it in schools and in museums, and it's been really a marvelous thing. And I think as we look at politics as they are right now, we're starting to recognize that, uh, you know, next fall is the anniversary of World War II. And we really take a look at how close we are to the precipice of another similar event. And we have to really think about what does that mean? What does that mean when we're anti-Semitic? What does it mean when we're racist? What does it mean when we are so tough in every country? When we keep saying, you know, we have to move the capital, We have to marginalize people. We have to say that people that already live here don't belong here. I can just say from my point of view, as an individual. We can only speak individually, and we can only make changes as an individual. I think what Margaret Mead says is that people ask, and one person make a difference? And indeed, it has always been the individual that has made the difference. I think that we look at the situation where, in Israel, where all of a sudden we're trying to create this form where you're Jewish or you don't belong here. And I think about, as a child growing up, how I thought about you know, religion was put to me in a very super marginalized way. I grew up in Amish country, Pennsylvania, and there were only Christian churches. I mean, there were Episcopalian, there were Protestant, there were right. Catholic, there was Baptist, but that was it. There were All Christians. Christianity. Right. And we had Cronenfelds, who had the Furriers, who were Jewish, but we didn't really know what Jewish was. That was it. There wasn't a temple. There wasn't anything else. There weren't Buddhists. There weren't Muslims. There weren't anything else at all in my town. And so you you grow up with this marginalized perspective of how life is and how it's meant to be. But for me, I always thought, what does it mean? What, what do all these different religions mean? And when I went to college and I met someone who was Jewish and they invited me to their home for the Easter holiday and then their parents said, no, you, she can't come to our house. And I said, but why? And they said, religious differences. And I said, yeah, but I'm Christian. And they said, yeah, but we're not. And I was like, well, what are you? Little did I know there was anything else to be. That was the first Jew who explained to me there was this other thing. Also still in a country, university, still kind of in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. And I started to have this awakening about religious differences. And what I came to understand, the more that I studied and the more that I've traveled all over the world, is that we have more similarities than differences. And I sort of feel like, you know, it doesn't matter where you get your God. It's kind of like a hamburger. It matters that you eat. It matters that you have faith. It matters that you have love. It matters that you have compassion. It matters that you have faith
2: of, of any f- kind,
1: of any kind. Yeah. It matters that you have faith in each other. It matters that you have love and faith in humanity and whatever kind of spiritual balm comes to you, grab it. Because if that allows you to be more loving and more compassionate in a world full of suffering, hang on, that's just great. And I find that all of this redefining and this heavy writing in the sand, marginalizing people and continuing to create stronger and starker barriers and more and more marginalization does not create more compassion or more love or more Mm. kindness or more care. It doesn't
2: create more safety either, especially.
1: I don't believe that it really does because it creates more a feeling of being left out. And when people feel left out and marginalized, they feel angry and hurt. I can say I always wanted to go to the Middle East and work towards peace. I felt like this is the place. This is the origin. This is the spot. And when I started to do that, when Shimon Perez invited me to Israel, and first to work on doing acting classes for adult Palestinians and Israelis together, and then to teach economics to adult Israeli and Palestinian women, and then to work at the hospital that was for Israelis and Palestinians and Jordanians and Egyptians. Egyptians and spending the time in the hospital with mothers whose kids had just had open heart surgery. None of us could speak the same language. Not any of us. There were women in burkas and women in all different kinds of... There were women from Egypt and Jordan and Palestine and everywhere. And these kids were cut open, stem to stern, kids, tiny babies and toddlers. And I went up and spent time with these women. And because of my work in the AIDS community, I... I have a lot of experience in spending time with families in trauma. And it doesn't require language to know what to do. It requires empathy, compassion, logic, and a lot of, frankly, backbone. Sometimes these kids are going to make it and sometimes they aren't. And if you have to be the person to tell somebody that their kid isn't going to make it and this is what we're going to have to do for the next few days, that takes a lot of
0: empathy. Oh, my goodness.
1: And in the work I've done, with AMFAR and with AIDS organizations around the globe, I've been in that situation a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can say that we don't need more margin- marginalization. We need more empathy yeah. Yeah. and compassion. Oh, I think it was during the Gulf War when I said, you know, I have such heartache for the mothers on both sides of this war because kids are fighting these wars. These are 18, 19, 20-year-old kids that are dying everywhere.
0: Yeah, the mothers wouldn't let that happen. I mean... They were the boss. They wouldn't let that happen.
1: No. I mean, I have an 18-year-old. I promise you he doesn't know what the hell's going on.
0: Right. No. And he wasn't raised in anger and hostility, which goes on in so many parts of the world that... that
1: well, he has his fair share of anger and hostility. but that comes normal. from a broken that, home. Yeah. I
0: mean, that's an, but that's an 18-year-old angst. I'm talking and, about being on the border of Palestine and Jerusalem and seeing yes, rockets... but every teenager
1: everywhere that gets sent into a war zone They're full of hormones. Yeah. For the most part, there are much more men than women that are going to war. They're full of this anger and testosterone and the confusion of being a teenager. To have it directed in this violent way, we have to be concerned that we're forming the personalities of these kids in a particular way.
0: Let's go back a little bit in time. So you were raised where you were raised. Yeah. And, and what, so, when did you come? What happened to you? What was your life path? <laughs> Give me the life path. <laughs>
1: Well, we didn't have any money, but we thought we did because my mother was a terrific homemaker, third generation Irish maid. She was given away when she was nine to be the live-in housekeeper for a dentist and his wife and their office was in the home. And she lived with them when she grew up. And so our house was spotless and beautiful. And she made our home into something that looked fantastic. We had an old farmhouse and a barn. Uh, that had a two-stall garage in the front of it. And we had a big U-shaped driveway that came in around the house between the house and the barn. And my mother put peony bushes on either side of the driveway. It was very elegant and beautifully. And my dad manicured the the lawn and my mother built a a gigantic acre garden. And she canned every end of the fall. And uh, my dad hunted for most of the protein that we ate. We ate deer in the winter and trout and rabbit Um and... How many were so you, you?
0: How many siblings are you? Four. There's Where do you two fall boys sibling?
1: I have a brother seven years older and a brother seven years younger and a sister three years younger.
0: Oh, your mom and dad spread it out a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah. <laughs> That's probably they did day. that right too.
1: <laughs> it was just a big country life, very very simple. Playing outside till dark um, safely. Safely doing everything ourselves. We made our own ice cream from the ice in the creek that in the ravine next to our house. You know, we picked our own vegetables. We we picked our own flowers. We were our own veterinarian, our own <laughs> plumber, our own electrician, our own auto mechanic. We pulled the engine out of the car in the garage and fixed it. We did, you know,
2: Oh, my God. Everything. It sounds like a lovely life. Did you have other kids in the neighborhood? Neighbors? Of course. Like, yeah. The time when there were a lot of children around. Yes, was, the neighbor yeah. kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you played night games like hide and seek and stuff yes. like that. Yes. Did you sew? Did you bake? Yes, of like, course. Did you do all that? Of course. Mid- I'm from Indiana, so we. Did I all made that stuff. my summer
1: shirts out of kitchen towels. <laughs> I love it. You know, like that. Simplicity <laughs> yeah. patterns were yeah. big deal. <laughs> uh uh-huh. huh.
2: Scooter yeah. skirts? I remember culottes. Cool Shots <laughs> and a skirt together. Culottes. Culottes. Yeah.
1: I was big in the jumpsuits. Still am. <laughs> I was the first girl to make a jumpsuit. Did you ever do stretch and sew?
2: No. It was like when Kiana came out and it was like a special way of sewing with a special little foot on the sewing machine. Oh, I think so. I think so. I made my own swimming suit. With the plastic <laughs> zippers. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs>
2: exactly. You know.
1: The very bad plastic zippers.
2: Mm, it's
0: funny.
1: But that was big in our town because one of the – we had two businesses in our town, which were the Erie Lackawanna Railroad and Talon Zipper. Talon Zipper. Talon Zipper.
2: T-A-L-O-N. Yep. Yeah. I remember that. They're mm-hmm. very sleek. I always think of Talon Zippers as being a, just a little bit more sort of upscale, and they came in different colors. That was the big deal in yeah. our town. Yeah, yeah. You
1: wanted a zipper, you could get it in our (laughs) (laughs) town.
0: Sounds like an idyllic, lovely life.
1: It wasn't. It was, um, we lived in the Jimmy Hoffa environment. A lot of our town was controlled by the mob. There were a lot of bars, a lot of corruption. There was a lot of the first the promoting for the union, and then years later, the breaking down of the union. There is no such thing as an idyllic life.
0: No, Mayberry unfortunately doesn't exist. No, it's
1: just an idea. It doesn't exist. In fact, it's a my dad made $14,000 a year. He worked swing shift. He drove an hour to and an hour from work. He worked in a factory as a die sinker where he laid um, blueprints on top of a steel block and then he cut the mold out of the steel block for car parts and gun parts and machine parts until laser came along and then people came to ask him to train them so that they could make these laser patterns. My dad was so muscular and as a result of picking up steel blocks all day. Yeah. He was like, you know, kind of a Schwarzenegger type of built guy, like just massive arms, very, very ripped, muscular dude. Handsome? Very handsome. My dad was very handsome. My mom was very beautiful. They were a great looking couple.
0: Did they like each other? They were very hot
1: for each other all their lives. They had a hot, sexy relationship. It was not unusual to come home from school and find them necking on the sofa.
2: (laughs) My parents were like this too. They would sing to each other and pinch each other. And
1: yes, my my mother still to the day uh, my dad died. She would put her hand down for my dad to sit on her hand, and she would say, "Goose him."
2: (laughs) Oh, that's so cute. (laughs) Yeah, love that.
1: Yeah, and he bought her short shorts when she was you know in her seventies, and would call her in to see a commercial and tell her, you know, you should get that lip gloss.
0: Oh, he cherished her. He did. That's so nice. Yeah. So let's go down this. So you had, you were one of four. Mm-hmm. How did you get out of there?
1: My brother went to prison.
0: Older brother? Older were. brother.
1: He got in a lot of trouble uh, with drugs. He had been a pretty big time marijuana dealer, like big as in like, you know, massive movement.
0: Like kilo m- movement. Wow.
1: Yeah. And then that business became so successful that all of a sudden they started, the cocaine business started to really happen in our country. And the people that he worked for started insisting that he turn his business into the cocaine business. And I don't think that he had much of a choice in the matter. He had been a crew chief jet mechanic in the Air Force during a particular period in time when all of this stuff was starting to go haywire.
0: We're in the 60s, right? Yeah. You know, those were the beginning of the Quaalude cocaine wild party days. Right. Was he
1: enlisted in Vietnam or was he here? He was in Dover. And when we took markers that we had killed uh, Vietnamese, our soldiers took ears and so forth. Their soldiers took heads. The Vietnamese took our soldiers' heads. So our soldiers were coming back in the empty missile containers, headless.
0: Oh my God. I never knew that.
1: Air Force Base, yes. And they, they were shipping them back in the missile containers. And so my brother, young 18, 19 year old kid, was the jet mechanic who was there to receive this kind of thing. Oh boy. And he, one night at the Air Force Base, had put his own car up on the rack to fix something. And he was in the trunk. And when he jumped down, his wedding ring caught on the trunk latch and ripped his finger off. And he got sent to the amputee ward of the military hospital, where he was put in with all the guys who were coming back from Vietnam. And that's where he started to really understand the drug culture and what was happening. And that, I think, is when his life really changed. And He got gangrene in his hand and in his arm, and he recovered, but he went through a tremendous psychological thing in the Veterans Hospital, and when he got out and then this drug business continued. I think he really lost his way. And he ended up being arrested just over the state line. As you know, Pennsylvania nestles into West Virginia and Ohio and New York. And he was just over state line into New York. And um, I think he'd been working with some pretty savvy and dangerous people. And the government wanted to find them. And they took my brother and tried to to break him. And so he went to Attica.
2: Oh Oh, my gosh
1: and he got a 15 to life sentence and we were able to get him out to a better prison but then he got sent back to that prison and he got put into i think they call it the box you know where they just stick you in a box and leave you there and
0: uh was in his early 20s
1: yeah so you know our family's been through a lot of various types of things and I think that my I had wanted to leave. I'd wanted to leave a lot earlier. I had you know the ability to go to better colleges further away, but my parents were so concerned that I was so young because my education was quite accelerated, and I was going to high school and college yeah, simultaneously.
0: I mean, you, were, you know yeah, you famously were, intelligent.
1: but they didn't want me to go away. But then once all this happened with my brother. I think that they really did want me to go away. So they allowed me to go to New York. I think more just to get me away from all of this crisis. And how old were you? I was 19. So my mother saw Merv Griffin on, or Eileen Ford, I think, on the Merv Griffin show. I think is how it went. <laughs> and thought, okay. so we're going to do with my
0: beautiful daughter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll
1: take her to New York. But I mean, we were such country bumpkins. We just went to New York. We didn't have an appointment. We didn't know where we were going. We didn't know where it was. We didn't know what was going on.
2: We just knew we were going there. To New York, to yeah. New York. York. What do you remember about that meeting and well, that whole like journey?
1: We met with several different modeling agents and they were all so nice to me. Wilhelmina was really spectacular, but she was dying of cancer and she was kind enough to tell us without telling us that she thought the better safer place in the long run for me would be with Eileen. And Eileen was kind enough to see that I was completely clueless and move me in with
2: one of her booking agents. Oh, so you lived with the booking. Agent. I lived with the booking agent. And for the listeners, this is Eileen Ford, who's a legendary. Yes. Uh, modeling agent and really culture maker for a long, long time. Right. She was such a unbelievably motherly
1: I wouldn't say sisterly, motherly, unless maybe you had a mother like mine. But she was uh, she was the kind of woman that, you know, I walked into her office and she's like, you are so beautiful. I wish I could throw you down the stairs and bounce the fat off your ass. (laughs) I mean, that was my hello to Eileen. So, yeah, she was. Would you have like seven ounces of fat (laughs) if you had my mother? No, I was pretty country round.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Country round. You know, we ate mashed potatoes and gravy <laughs> yeah. for dinner every night. What did I know? You know, I was a normal size for a country girl. Right, but uh, not.
2: That's so funny. Not the way it <laughs> throw you down the stairs. Now. Yeah. Did that put you off? You're you're a smart girl, so you probably
1: were did it. it put of me like, off. My mother talked to me like that all the time. Yeah, okay. No, I mean <laughs> that's you know <laughs> that's <so funny>. no. <laughs> She didn't slap me and tell me to go back and do it again. So I thought, great. You know, no, I grew up on – tough country mm-hmm. love where you got thrown down a flight of steps and you got beat with a belt and then you went and did everything you were supposed to mm-hmm. do over till you did it correctly. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't uh, I didn't grow up. So Eileen I mean, wasn't so you that prepared. unusual for you.
2: In some ways you were very prepared for like the rough and tumble of what was. Yes. Yeah. I
1: said to my mother once, you know, mom, you never let me lean on you. And she said, that's right. I taught you to stand on your own two goddamn feet. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't that you come in the door and it's like, come here and give mom a hug. Yeah, I just yeah. love you so much. Look how cute you are today. How was school? Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. It's not like my house where yeah. like my kids walk in and I'm like, oh, yeah. he's so handsome. <laughs> Did you see him? Look at him. Let me take your picture. Yeah, that sounds
2: like my house. Yeah. No.
1: It's like I have more pictures of my children Right. from yeah. just, you know, because they got up.
2: Right, right. (laughs) look at you (laughs) you're breathing in and breathing out yeah you got up
1: look at you look at you you have on a pink t-shirt god (laughs) you're cute come here let mommy give you a hug no
2: nothing like
1: that at all right
2: no (laughs) so you could kind of walk in and take anything because you were super strong pretty much pretty much what did you make of the whole world like You didn't probably know that much about modeling. What did you make of it as you walked into it and did it? Like, did it seem stupid? Did it seem fascinating? Like, how did it It seem like they gave you an awful lot of money? And I thought that was great. (laughs) I
1: wasn't really good at it (laughs) when I was young. Give me that check. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't a very good model. I'm a very good model now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had decades of experience. I understand it completely. I understand why we're there. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, no one tells you why you're there. They don't really explain to you. It's not about you. It's not about whether you're pretty or not. It's not about your body. It's about you holding the clothes in a way that makes people want them. It's an aspirational situation. It's about you creating a shape with something that's shapeless. Now I can look through a magazine and I could think, oh, look at that. I'm going to do that the next time. Look what they do with their hand there. Oh, that's such a good idea. Oh, they're a dancer. Look what they're doing. And I see things in magazines and I think, oh, I'm going to try that. Mm -hmm. You know, and I learn all these kind of great things when I see people who are really great at it. Then I had no clue and I was taking it personally. Oh, yes, I had no I was so traumatized by the whole thing. I had no idea because no one really it's not the kind of thing like when you go to school to be a doctor and, you know, you're there to try to help someone with their health and to save their life. And here's what you have to learn to do that with a career like modeling. They just sort of throw you at it and see if you stick. So that's it's so ambiguous. It's it's a little more difficult it's to understand what you're supposed short-lived to
0: do. a career. You know, the well, not for sure well, As a I, model. Mean, no. I
1: I aspire to be like Carmen, who is what eighty, and mm-hmm. she's modeling and she's amazing and she looks great. I think you can model your whole life if you understand the job, but you have to understand what you're there for.
2: You're also still very curious about it. I mean, that's what jumps out at me is like you're looking at other people's work and going, oh, oh.
1: Well, I get it now. I mean. Yeah. I understand what I'm doing when I'm there, and I take it seriously. They pay you a lot of money. I understand it's an advertising concept. I understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, and I feel blessed to be able to do it so that I think I've always made more money modeling than anything else that I've ever done, and I enjoy that. I enjoy the possibility of taking care of my family and and doing that job, and Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a foolish
0: job at all.
2: Mm -hmm. No, it's definitely not Mm -hmm. that. No. For me, when I heard we were going to speak to you, the very first thing that came forward, casino came forward, but the other thing that came forward was the black turtleneck (laughs) <laughs> at the oscars uh-huh. it really was because to me being a, a, a kid who moved from indiana to new york city when i was 22 and didn't have a lot of money mm-hmm. and i would mix i would mix things and i would do things mm-hmm. and i would always feel a little abashed about it a, a little bit like mm-hmm. oh, i'm not really wearing a nice i'm sort the of faking right it. and then you did that and it was just kind of like oh this exquisite goddess of film is doing this thing and doing it out. She's out about it. And it was so empowering to so many women. And I don't know if you know that. I don't. I don't. I didn't. Thank you. It's just when I spoke to my niece today, who's closer in age to me than any of my siblings, because I was the I was the caboose in my family. I was born long after my brother's. First thing she said is, oh, that turtleneck. And she's 42. So it's really a thing. It's a thing. I
1: think that What happened is that I had dresses in the works, and then one got run over by the FedEx truck, another one fell apart. It just led me, the path led me to have to stand up and say, look, I'm going because I'm an artist. I'm not going because I have a dress. And it led me on a different journey. Mm -hmm. And I started realizing that I could go as the artist that I am. I didn't have to go in a particular dress.
2: Right on. That's so cool. And it became so iconic. Isn't that funny? It's yeah. amazing. And you are an artist. I mean, my friend um, James Owens, who created the world is just a book away. Right. Uh, he's a good friend.
1: What a lovely uh, man.
2: Sweet soul. Just a good. Sweet, good person. Really good person. And you stood up, and I think that you said you consider yourself a mother first, philanthropist second, and an artist next. I just love that. Because I it think it's this true
1: point, though, I'm starting to understand that my artistry comes into everything and that if I'm not inspired as an artist, I'm not as good at any of the other things and that I need, really need some inspiration or I feel flat mm-hmm. that the artistry thing is a bit of a lifeline for me.
2: So you need some inspiration or it's flat for you. Mm-hmm. Is inspiration a way into material that you receive, or is it just an environment that you create for yourself that you bring to the It's
1: everything. I mean, I'm always trying to do something. You know, I'm writing. I write a lot of short stories. Some of them have been published in magazines. I write song lyrics. Some of them have been successful. I wrote a beautiful song for my oldest son, and it went to number one on an album in Germany. I've enjoyed doing a bunch of different things. I paint. I haven't painted lately. But just, it just depends. I think you have to find things that just keep you feeling and seeing and experiencing. It's harder to find good material. Women my age are very rarely a lead in anything. And it's hard to find material where that character has enough of anything to do that makes me feel like I want to go do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so that's the difficult situation.
2: Going back to Casino, that character was just so beautifully and complexly and subtly portrayed by you and not subtly portrayed by you.
1: Nick uh, Pelleggi is such a terrific writer and Marty Scorsese really he gave me the space to develop the
2: character correctly. Did you enjoy playing her?
1: Sometimes. Sometimes it was just a blast, and sometimes it was profoundly agonizing. And there were days at a time when I almost didn't know where I was. I think without my boyfriend at the time, Bob Wagner, who was an AD, and he was on that film as well, I don't think I could have done it. He was such a tremendous support to me. He helped me so much through that project. I mean, I ran the bathtub over in our condo there like three times, like ran the bathtub over so the water was coming out from under the door. Like I was just so out of it. Uh I was so exhausted and playing the character had me so just completely discombobulated. And I remember the second time I did it, I was just like horrified when this cascade of water came out from under the door of the bathroom. And I looked at him and I thought, oh, he's just gonna flip. And he looked at me and he said, I've got it, honey. You just keep doing what you're doing because you're going to the show this time. You just let me handle this stuff. And he just took the most tremendous care of me, and he let me feel like being an artist was the only thing I needed to do, and that he respected it so much that my other failings were insignificant. And I have never, ever had a relationship with anyone who respected my art, even, frankly, a little by comparison, because most men think that you're just, oh, you're such an actress— But to have someone who cradles you to the point where you don't have to know where you are so that you can abandon yourself to such a big animal of a character, it was just never – it was just nothing like it for me. And uh, I have such tremendous gratitude to him for that. and. It does make it hard to have a relationship. I remember someone asking Vanessa Redgrave, do you call yourself an actor or an actress? And she's like, well, an actress, it's so empowering. And, and I guess it is if you're a Redgrave. <laughs> but if you're not, everyone else just says, oh, you're an actress. And it's so constantly condescending to have someone, anyone, actually help you like Scorsese did be as present with you as De Niro and Pesci and Woods were. And to have the personal support that I had in my relationship at that time, that just doesn't happen. And it certainly hasn't happened in my life. Not from my agents, not from my representatives, not from my community. I just, this is a very rare thing. You would have thought after Casino, I'd have been getting a lot of other tremendous film offers, but I didn't. It's very very complicated to succeed in the business if you're not in. It's almost like high school. Yeah. If you're not in the the clique, if you're not in the thing, if you don't,
0: you know, the mean girls. Yeah. mean girls
1: it's just a it's a complex thing and people will say that you did this or about me she's like this she's like that i'm not like anything i'm like everybody i'm like everybody who wants to go to work put their head down and do a good job
0: i always think that that comes from envy i think people say say things about people because they have envy you know, and that's to me the root of so many problems that exist in the world today. Well, Jealousy, why don't we envy, have room hate. enough for
1: everyone? Yeah, some, I because agree what are all, we
0: afraid of? Because they're not, so many people just don't have the ability to step out of their own little stupid circle that they live in There's, and say, I embrace you. Fantastic. Yeah. They just don't know how to do that. It's um... You have to remember, Zoe Sharon, in all seriousness, your intellect is so far superior to most people that you would ask that question and genuinely expect to get an answer uh, on the level in which you ask that question. It's impossible because most people don't think outside of their own instant gratification.
2: You're also an artist, like you really are true artist. The work that you have done that i feel shows you in the best light has always been with other artists like real artists right and the fact it does not surprise me at all that you paint and you make poetry and you write lyrics and you do all these other things because that's the essence i'm an introvert yeah yeah you were talking very early on in our conversation about when i look back at things i wrote when i was young or paintings i yes. i painted when i was young i have everything i've ever written in my whole life and many of pieces of art that I've created because my father was a collector of those things on my behalf how wonderful yeah no I was really just blessed with the he doted in that way in other ways they were tough but in that way he was very encouraging so how do you have all of that stuff well I don't think I have even a single painting what was your subject were you a a figurative artist or a, a landscape what did you do Abstraction? Like, what was your.
1: I painted all different kinds of things. Sometimes I painted landscapes. Sometimes I painted women in strange environments. Sometimes. Cool. Are you
2: still doing that? Are you. No, then I got on this
1: tangent where I painted flowers. Now I photograph, and I've been photographing for years and years and years and years. And I photograph nature. And so, my friend who ran Sigma. For 27 years, I just finally started to show her my photographs and said, do you think there's a book here? And she said, I think there are books here. And it's going to take me over a year to edit what you've got because I have so many things and I didn't ever show them to anyone. Wow. So this is one of the projects I'm working on now are some books of the photographs. I just came back from Alaska uh, last week. Which was astounding. I took my kids and my brother and, and his wife and their kids. On a cruise? On a cruise in Alaska. It was astounding. I did
0: that. It's amazing, isn't it? Oh, my. The beauty of theirs. The beauty, but the truth. The truth
1: when you say see big pieces of glacier floating around yeah. in the ocean the, and you see th- just hundreds of waterfalls, and you know that everything is melding right before your eyes, and you see the seals floating around on little ice chips, and you see how freaked out they are, Yeah, and you see that it's just, it's happening right in front of you, and that obviously global warming is real, but just that we're in such a moment of the world changing right in front of us, and, you know, we were in Alaska in a t-shirt.
0: Yep. It's,
1: it's terrible. It's, it's astonishing tenor. is really what it is.
0: So go back to your – so you started off in your professional career mm. in modeling. What was the step to get you to become an artist as, an, as a performing artist? Well,
1: when I went to New York, I was pretty good at commercial auditions and I started – working on my accent because I had a Pennsylvania country accent by you- watching Walter Cronkite on the news can
2: you do the Pennsylvania
1: jeet jet mm-hmm. y'all go downtown get something to eat did you did you see any deer today when you're in the woods just shoot a deer they fall in the water they fall down the, in the woods yeah. they talk like that
2: so almost on the Appalachian <laughs> side of- yeah they
1: blend it all in and yeah
2: yeah uh- get
1: some pop jeet jet is a really good one to see. The deer was on the front of the front of the yeah. truck. Yeah, that didn't play like well for Pepsi, yet. right? <laughs> yeah, pop. Do you want to pop? Yeah, it, it's frank. a little like it. Ble- it's a sort of little bit. Words are kind of they smear together a little bit more. And
2: love that. So you worked on removing that, removing that. Yeah, but both. And you learned from Walter Cronkite. Yeah. So yeah. Walter helped you, and did you also study elocution? It? Elocution. Well, not
1: <laughs> no. No, because, you know, who knew that you could even do that? <laughs> I once met Walter Cronkite and told him that I learned to, to speak from him, and that's why I only spoke in, like, four-word bursts <laughs> at a time. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh,
0: that's priceless. <laughs> he's
1: so great. I mean, it's like right now when you see Brian Williams on the news. He's just a different kind of reporter, and to me, he's like, Oh, real reporting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. a real newsman. Yeah,
0: only well, we had Walter Cronkite, right? Right. Most trusted. Well, thank man God in we have Rachel Maddow. I know. I feel like I learn so
1: much every time I watch her because mm. she talks about everything, everything yeah. with
0: no filter. Fascinating. Yeah, she's yeah. great with yeah. no filter. She's, she's a a really brainiac. She, yeah, that so she, she talks
1: is. about all different kinds of things. So I'm always kind of learning things. And when she she's just rolls on. Yeah, she rolls on and on,
0: and I'm it's amazing. Yeah, that mind—it's—it's it's amazing. She's so impressive. The brain is really—it's incredible. Yes, there's nobody that tells the truth anymore on the news, except yeah. for people like her. Yes. she's fantastic i Mm -hmm. know when walter cronkite was on we were both girls you and i yes and i would watch him and i think i believe you and when i was back on him and when he had that job and i thought he was the most trusted man in america yes and he deserved to be when i was a little girl there was huntley and brinkley i remember them
1: and when they would say good night chat good night hunt
0: (laughs) yeah yeah oh my god if only we had that today. Oh my God. You know who
2: I mourned was when Charles Corralt retired from oh. CBS oh. Sunday morning. It murdered me. It was yeah. sort of like, to me, this kind of voice of rationality and love and curiosity. Oh, my God.
1: And when, when they took their glasses off, you knew, oh, trouble.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: trouble, the glasses are coming yeah. off.
0: I, I remember um, when John F. Kennedy died. Me and you, too. And you saw him. I mean... <laughs> make me cry even now. Right. That was such a... And I was a little, little girl. We were little. I think he died in 1963. Right. I was eight. I was five. five. I came home from
1: school. I remember the teacher collapsing onto her desk. Came home from school. My dad came home. We all
0: huddled in the living room. I could actually still see that in my face right now. When I close my eyes, I can still see the picture of him rubbing his eyes like this. uh, that Mm -hmm. That was the end of Camelot.
1: I love that kind of profound reporting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we don't have that anymore. I think that's why Except we
1: Rachel. <laughs> all fell for Oprah, because she would come out and just say something that was true. Yeah. Anything at all Yeah, 100%. that was true. Well, i like anyone to come out and just say anything that's true. true. It's just very interesting when someone yeah. says something that's true.
2: It's a moment of, like, people don't know... How to trust what to even say to each other Yeah, because there's such divide. and, and
1: Well, and everything's become offensive. Yeah. If you tell the truth, it's some suddenly an offense. Right.
0: And people are just itching to be offended too. People are easily offended. So go back. So you were out doing commercials and doing well. I was doing a lot of commercials and
1: I got offered a Wes Craven movie, a horror movie.
0: And I thought, God. How old were you? Like 19 or something 20, like that?
1: 20 maybe or something. And I thought, oh, God, 20 or, yeah, 20, 21, maybe.
0: And I thought, God, why
1: would I do this? And I kept asking the producers and I was like, you know, this is the kind of money I'm making modeling. And why would I do this? And, <laughs> and so I made my deal and they, they were like, you know what, you should, frankly, you should come to L.A. and you should be an agent.
2: <laughs> that makes so much sense to me. Right. Because you're smart. You're right. really And smart. I made a yeah. really good deal for yeah. myself. And I was like, I don't really want to be an agent.
1: <laughs> no. But I did move to L.A. That was the impetus. Mm-hmm. What was that like? What year was it? Oh, I'm sure it's been almost not quite 40, 35 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So there you were, young, beautiful, making a bunch of money, picked yourself up. Well, you up, don't make down. money.
2: In, no, you but moved, you were moved, making moved, a bunch of money. I was making yeah, you money. you gave that up to come here. I came
1: you? to L.A. And L.A. Suddenly wasn't a big model, was,
2: modeling market. Yeah, I was
1: doing underwear ads for the May Company with Sherry Belafonte. <laughs> <laughs> we were always booked together.
0: She's so beautiful, too.
1: <laughs> she's so beautiful. She's so great. We worked together all the time, and uh, that was it. That was my big
0: client. That's amazing. The May
1: Company. And I did Cole and Catalina swimsuit ads. I had that. that uh, Those clients stayed with me for quite a while.
0: So, what's the crossover? How, how did you decide to give up that big check? Because that's good money when you're It was mom. great money. And when you become a, a new actor or star, there's no money. There's no
1: I was money. living on like a dozen eggs and a loaf of bread, going out on dates. These sort of weird old guys would ask me on dates, and I'd be like, can I bring my girlfriend? <laughs> You know, because none of us could eat. <laughs> Day to eat, we feel like you thin. There, right? sure. Can I bring my friends? <laughs> Anyone who could bring a meal, <laughs> right? Some way to eat was always was always a big thing. Who
2: did you Who did you uh, work and play with? I mean, Sherry was somebody you mentioned. Like, who were your buddies in
1: um, those days? Well. Wes's wife, Mimi, who was a flight attendant, became my very, very dear friend for decades. And, um, I had friends in the modeling industry who died. You know, I grew up through a very difficult period. As you know, I worked 22 years for the American Foundation for AIDS Research and an awful lot of people that I worked with died, died of AIDS, died of drug overdoses. Died of of Mm. any variety of crazy reasons. Our generation was a generation that lost an awful lot of people young. Our generation was a different kind of generation than other generations. We lost so many of the people that we knew very, very, very young. Because in the modeling and theater and acting business, lots and lots and lots of people died.
0: These were the early days of AIDS. People didn't really know what Why? was going on. Like, what's happening here?
1: Why is everybody dying and what can we do dying? about it?
0: Yeah, two wonderful diseases came out of that time, hepatitis C and AIDS. And there was this kind of onslaught Of drugs, right, and nightclubs. Every party you went to, there was cocaine, quaaludes, LSD, marijuana—you name it.
1: And there was a sexual kind of component that probably hadn't been around since like the twenties. Maybe there was a kind of sexual, not even really freedom, like a frenzied sexuality that hadn't been around in any.
0: Certainly not in our parents' generation and not in our children's generation.
1: No, gosh, no. no.
0: Those 60s and 70s were the prime time for – all that that yeah, was in early
1: on. early 80s. I,
0: I was so surprised. I mean you and I are almost the same age. I remember going to parties. My husband's 8 years older than me. I remember going into parties with him and everybody had their head in a coke tray. Yeah. I was a kid. I'm looking at this going what is going on here? Oh, everybody yes. was stoned. Everybody was having sex with everybody's wives.
1: You go into a restaurant everybody. and people were doing coke off the back of their bread plate. Right. I mean it was so out in the open. Yeah. It was just a very decadent period.
0: It was right after the war. Mm-hmm. You know, people came back and they were just bon vivanting. Mm-hmm. A lot of bad stuff happened as a result of that. And people died from AIDS and nobody knew how you got AIDS. How did you get AIDS? What does that mean you got AIDS? And then, you know, that, that was that. And it just ran rampant. It was unbelievable. I mean, everybody knew people who were sick. Everybody. I don't think that there was any single person that I knew at that time that didn't know somebody who was dying of AIDS. It's not like that anymore. I remember
1: my mother saying, there's no family left that hasn't been touched by this. There was nobody that didn't have a friend or a family member or a relative that hadn't been touched.
0: Was it your personal experiences with people who you knew that drove you to do the work that you did with AMFAR?
1: You know, what actually happened is that I was in Cannes and I had a movie that was closing. I think it might have been The Quick and the Dead, closing the festival. Because, you know, you have a film like I made a lot of blockbusters for a period. And when you make a blockbuster, that film will open or close the festival. It won't be in competition, but the big, biggers open and close it as an event. And Dr. Krim, who just passed away in this last year, who was one of the founders of AMFAR, she and a couple of people came and spoke to me and Cindy Berger, who is now the head of PNK, but In those days, she was, you know, just a a beginner, came to us and said that Elizabeth Taylor couldn't do the AMFAR event. And could I step in for her? And I was completely overwhelmed. I mean, I had been in Africa, and there was the AIDS crisis, and I had come home to find out that my friend Rock Hudson was dying. And that was sort of my introduction to the AIDS crisis. I was seeing it happen firsthand in Africa, not knowing what it was, getting off the plane, and my friend was dying. All of a sudden, now, I was being asked to host this event. And in those days, it was a small event in one room, a dinner, And I agreed to do it, but I was terrified. I granted a wish to the Make-A-Wish Foundation for a girl who had AIDS, who wanted someone to come and get her ready for her school dance. She was 14. And when I got there, she was far too ill to go. And I spent the day with her, and I helped grant another wish that she wanted to go back to Paul Newman camp before she died, which we got together. And so that night in Cannes, I told the story of my day with her and what that was like. And that she died in the trailer coming home from Paul Newman's camp, and what it was like to spend the day with a little girl who knew she was dying from AIDS, and how that had affected me, and what that journey had been like, and that that is why I had agreed to to do that evening. And we raised maybe like a hundred and seventy-five grand or something. And the last time that I did one, we raised about thirty. Five
2: million. That's what. That's what published thirty-five million. Thirty-five million
1: in the same. From in the yeah. hundreds
0: thousands to thirty-five, 35 million. million dollars.
1: Yeah, and I've done that all over the world, and I've sort of taught other charitable organizations how to do this sort of thing. And I could tell you, it's just been an exhausting journey. This has been exhausting.
0: What you, serendipity, though, to have had the luck to have had you in that room at that moment to help. And then have it to become so much of your life's work?
1: I mean, I signed up for three years at that time, and after three years, it was just like there was nothing. It took so long for something to really dig in. It took so long for the work and so many trips to laboratories and hospices and arguing with the UN and fighting with people for funding and having presidents that were just...
0: What's the state of the AIDS situation in America in the world today?
1: Well, I've retired from Amfar, so this is probably the first interview I've ever done where I don't have really up-to-date statistics. But I would say there's probably thirty-nine to forty million people living with AIDS. Has um,
0: AIDS become chronic?
1: Well, I mean, forty million people have died from AIDS. Mm-hmm. You will die from AIDS if you get AIDS. Uh, but you can live a long time now with AIDS, places, decades.
2: Places like South Africa and Swaziland still have big problems with AIDS, right?
1: Well, now when I go to Africa, you will see. Even in on a girls' school gate in the middle of Uganda, you will see we will not get AIDS. We will use protection in wrought iron written on their <laughs> gates going in. I mean, this is there are seriously addressing this and since nevirapine was invented which stops you know the mother to child transition it's become a law in South Africa anyway that mothers have to take the drug but that's only part of the problem because what happens If you live in a third world country and you give birth to an AIDS-free child and you have AIDS and you can't breastfeed and you have filthy water that you're going to carry on your head in a gas can for miles and miles every day, you're going to give your kid cholera. So what kind of choices do you have? Uh, AIDS-infected breast milk, cholera from the powdered milk. I mean, there are not a lot of choices. You're giving this woman a healthy baby and then telling her, we're not really here to help you keep it healthy because we don't have clean water for you. And good luck there, mom. So that's when I got very invested in trying to put clean water in, in third world countries, when I started to go there and see you know, the implications of, of these secondary and tertiary issues. So I started working more with the UN and started presenting initiatives to the United Nations on different levels. How can we work with the Red Cross to train more pedestrians? How to give birth? How to give inoculations? How to teach people all kinds of different things? And I started learning that you, any citizen, can present an initiative to the United Nations. And if your initiative is good enough, they'll call you back and you get to come in and you get to present your initiative to the United Nations. And if your initiative is successful, they will help you in whatever direction you want to go with it. So I've presented several initiatives to the United Nations, and some of them have gone on as far as sending me to the Karolowski Institute, which is the institute that is next door to the Nobel Institute. And they will bring in people from the Red Cross, doctors from all over the world, and they'll create panels and other people that will help you take your initiative further. I've uh, presented other initiatives where I've ended up speaking at The Hague and speaking uh, to a bigger body at the United Nations. About how to create part of our armed forces as a peaceful part so that if you want to enlist or you are drafted, you don't have to serve in the armed por- part of the armed forces, various things that you could do to help uh, settle all of these refugees, and various ways that we can move the refugees around the globe. And so I presented an initiative about that to the UN and then to The Hague. So you can, if you have ideas that make sense and come full circle, you can approach the UN with your initiatives, and then they will direct you to the appropriate place to continue to some kind of fruition. And so for example, my initiative about working with the Red Cross to do some of these things, I found out years later that it actually part of it got put into practice. They don't come back to you and tell you we're going to do this and that, but they do take your initiatives wow. and they let them be heard and be seen, and then they use them if they're good. So
2: it's like a marketplace of ideas. Almost. It is. Yeah.
1: That's and interesting. when people tell you vote, it matters, vote, it matters. But if you have a kooky idea and you think it has real meaning and merit and value, you have to map it out so that you can say your idea in five or six minutes. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. It's like pitching and, a movie.
0: <laughs>
1: yes. And you also have like a 15 minute version and you really know what you want to say there's places to say it yeah. mm-hmm. and I have found that incredibly rewarding and interesting and I've gotten to speak with and together with and work with statesmen and medical people from all over the world and it's
2: been extraordinary you've also been recognized by the Nobel Laureates organization yes recently yes um, can you tell us about that like what precipitated that and what well
1: uh, when I got the letter <laughs> it was a Day at our house, I got the letter. The everyone who wins the Nobel Peace Prize, they become a group, the Nobel Peace Laureates, and they work together, and they continue to work together throughout the rest of their lives to do things that they want to do to create peace in the world. And this astounding group of people, and I met some of these people when I was asked to go and um, host the Nobel Peace Prize concert. And when you do that, you also get to interview on air on the radio, whoever wins the Nobel Peace Prize. In my year, I got to interview Mohammed Yunus, who invented the microloan. And Yunus and I have become very dear friends. And I helped him bring the microloan to the United States. And that has been a very rewarding experience. and, And we've stayed close since. And I got to know more Of these people, and of course, more of the extraordinary people who come to the concert and the things that they do, and they get to know you. And when they invite you, they invite you. I think they want to know you. And ultimately, I got a letter uh, a few years ago that I was being considered to win the Nobel Peace Laureate this called the peace summit award so the peace laureates vote on one person a year that they feel has made the most impact towards creating peace and susta- sustainability in the world and so i got this letter that i was being considered for this award and these are complex letters to receive when you receive these kind of letters i've received a few of them in my lifetime that i hardly can read the letter i'm so they're so <laughs> complex and they're so overwhelming so i was reading this letter and I was just holding on to the kitchen counter and trying to breathe and trying not to cry and trying to figure out what it really said.
0: (laughs) You need a translator. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And I I have a man, Mr. Robert, who has painted. It's a little bit like the painter on Murphy Brown. Uh (laughs) I met him when he was painting an apartment that I lived in. (sighs) 35 years ago, and he's been painting everywhere I've lived ever since. And now he's like, a, he's like my uncle. I don't know how to explain it. And he was sitting there in the kitchen, and he's like, well, of course you got this. And he was being so loving. And that just made me cry more. And then Tina, my business partner, came into the kitchen, and she's like, I don't think you read the last page. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you really, you should read the last page. So I read the last page, and the last page said, we have chosen you to receive this Nobel Peace Summit Award. I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. I literally, I couldn't (laughs) stay standing. I was holding the kitchen counter. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't cope because we are like the secret do-gooders. I've traveled so much all over the globe all my life and my original travels were to Africa when I did these couple of terrible canon movies, these King Solomon's Mimes movies, but I did them during apartheid and we, we got walkie talkies and we were secreting people oh out God. of Soweto and we were helping people through this terrible ordeal and Mandela was in prison and we were, we were engaged in this really horrific apartheid thing. And we I thought I was going to Africa for three months and I ended up staying there like a year and a half because of the apartheid war and because we got shut down on our film and because this drought ended and all these various factors, I ended up just being there during this war. And I was living in Africa during the apartheid war. And so all of this stuff started, my life started radically changing. And I think there was this journey that was predetermined for me in this way. And maybe I am a bit of an existentialist, but I believe that your choice is with how much integrity you meet your journey. You don't really get to pick what's going to happen. Or I don't think any of us would pick all the crazy shit that happens. But all this crazy stuff happened in my life. And I've, of course, I know Desmond Tutu, and I knew Mandela, and I ended up in it, And so all through these years, I ended up knowing so many astonishing people. And in the very difficult times of my life, when I had a stroke and a massive brain hemorrhage and when my career fell apart because of it and when everything went terrible for me, I had Desmond Tutu as a pen pal. Wow. I could talk to these people. That's a lifeline that will keep you on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. And I had very, very dark times. And to come back and then have these very people say, we see you. We see that you chose a good path. We're acknowledging you and we're proud of you. It was really a big deal for me. It was a big deal. amazing. And it was a big deal I didn't tell people about. I just kept it very close to myself. I didn't do any PR. I didn't tell other people. (laughs) I just... I went to Warsaw, and I got to meet Les Velez, who was a person who did the peaceful overthrow of the government. He was mm-hmm. a like a guy who shut down the trash workers and the dock workers and figured out how to overthrow a, a wrong government. I had already gotten to meet Vasa Havel in Czechoslovakia, who was one of my great heroes, and I got to go there and meet him and receive an award there earlier and have dinner with him and madeline albright together which was and her sister with my sister which i can't even begin to tell you and miss albright is someone that i've had the extraordinary good fortune of having a few dinners with in my lifetime but really private like five or six people at dinner this is the kind of thing there isn't a movie star That is as big of a deal to me as meeting Madeleine Albright or meeting Vassal or Les Velez. I mean, these people put their lives on the line and they carried the lives of their nations in the palm of their hand. And so these things, while they're quiet, they're huge to me. And it was just amazing. I mean, I got to sit next to Sharon Abadi at dinner and I don't know if you know who she is. But she's such a great woman. She, The Iranian government bugged all the cell phones through a cell phone company to disrupt their people and to oppress their people. And she went after the cell phone company and the government and took it it down, stopped it. They put her husband in prison. They tortured her family. They did everything, and she beat it. She took it to the mat, and she beat it. I mean— I became so close to Betty Williams, who she and Mayred McGuire did the Million Mom March in Ireland in the 70s and stopped the uprising.
0: remember that, yeah.
1: And she's like a mom to me now. Betty Williams, she's in her 70s, and she called me and said, you know, I got this land in the south of Italy that they wanted to put nuclear waste on it. And there was this woman, this older woman, and she just camped out on it and she wouldn't leave. And she wasn't going to let it happen. I went out and stayed in her tent with her. And we got the land. And now, Sharon, I need your help because we want to build a refugee camp there. And I just can't get it through. I need you to come over and help me. And I got to do that. I got to go to Italy, to the south of Italy with Betty, my mom from another's place. And we brokered a deal between Mr. Natuzzi, who's like the number one guy who makes leather furniture in Italy, and the government. And we talked them into doing matching funds to build this refugee camp.
0: I can't imagine they would have said no to you. <laughs> well,
2: you <laughs> yeah, know, part of, is, part of it is, Sharon, you're capable of making a plan that makes sense to everybody involved. This is. Well, we, we Betty
1: had gotten this really great architect to do a completely self sustaining water, every single thing, self sustaining architecture. We got, we really, she really got it together. And I helped her make the deal. And it's growing. It's a camp that's growing every day. And I met all these great refugees, these young, young people, and sit with them and eat with them and hear their stories and hang out with them and go to church with them and experience I mean, the guy who was supposed to come, the governor who was supposed to come decided the night before a tennis match had changed and one of their top Italian players was going to play Serena. So he blew us off. And the the sub-governor came. And I said to the sub-governor, in the end, this is going to mean a lot more than the tennis match. Help me and I'll help you. And he's doing really well in politics now. (laughs) (laughs) But and he did the right thing. Yeah. And the right thing matters. Yeah. And we built – on the same trip I worked with Andrea Bocelli, and we put in all kinds of uh, schools for refugees in Jordan. So we we really are able to do all these things and no one ever – it's like almost like a secret. We just get to kind of go around and do this stuff and it's – it's astounding and wonderful.
2: Mm-hmm. You talked about meeting your path with integrity because your path is gonna happen to you. Yeah. And it's almost like it's all been written down already. Yeah. So as you move forward and you lean into what's next in this space, like is the environment something that came forward? There's a lot of energy when you were talking about the environment. Is is
1: you know, I don't know. Uh, I suspect maybe when my photographic books come out that'll come up. Yeah. The fascinating part of getting older is the understanding that we don't know anything, especially including what's going to happen to our life.
0: It's incredible.
1: You think that by now you're going to have a whole plan, yeah? And the the best part, God laughs, right? And the best part of it is knowing that you don't really want a plan, and you don't really want things. I want to get rid of my things, and I want less of a plan.
0: It's amazing. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Really, I'm honored to call you my friend. Likewise. I've been crying on and off the whole time you've been (laughs) sitting (laughs) here. That's amazing. What's next for you? Well, I'm working on this book. Your photography book?
1: That, and I'm really working on this autobiography. It's uh,
0: Wouldn't that be something?
1: uh, It's, uh, to do it honestly and truly is a tremendous amount of work.
0: Do you have notes? Oh. Have you kept notes during your life?
1: I have a lot of short stories and some of them are true. Those are really my notes. I also have a lot of notes from people over the years that I've kept. A lot of it are things that I think about. I just am not sure like how much do I talk about my time in Africa? How much am I gonna talk about uh this or that? I mean I could write ten books, you know, I've been so many places and seen so many things. It's like I could never talk about living in Hollywood and tell you know have no, so many you're stories a to tell.
0: Fantastic mother, and you know to me, Thank and you. I've said this many times, and I really believe with all my heart that when you are a mother, mm. our responsibility is to raise our children well. Yeah, and your children observe you; they watch your behavior, they watch how you make a difference, and the impact that you will have on them for the rest of their lives and their children's lives will be carried forward because of the work you did.
1: I mean, they're just starting to understand any will. of that. I don't think. They don't see it yet because they're too until little. Until recently, my kids just thought that I baked cookies. And, yeah. <laughs> you know.
0: I <laughs> Played basketball with them. Yeah. Stuff. I don't yeah. think
1: that they, yeah.
0: And had a good eye for art.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: What do you guys do for fun together? Take trips to Alaska.
1: <laughs> we, yeah. We went to Alaska. We take big trips. They like adventures. But my kids love to be at home. I built this home and I I bought the house next door, which had been attached when it was Montgomery Cliffs' house long, long ago. And so I put the properties back together, and I'm just finishing that. I've had my house for 25 years, but that's just an endless thing. It is. My kids love the house because the house kind of has everything. You know, it has a swimming pool. It has a screening room. It has places to play outside. Mm -hmm. We love to be at home, Mm -hmm. and we watch movies, and we swim, and we play basketball, and, you know—
2: we all have in common that we're all mothers of only boys. Yeah, I have two sons that are 14 and 16 and they love to be home too. They're like I'm like get get up, go pull go hang out with
1: other people. There are often, you know, 10 plus boys, boys mm-hmm. at my house Me too. There's a lot <laughs> of stinky Boys mm-hmm. and dogs and just... Isn't the stinky
2: weird how it like action. suddenly comes on out of nowhere? The yeah, they're at that age. Yeah.
1: They're at the really stinky boy age, you know, where mostly I'm just screaming, can anyone take a shower? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's so... Um, my children are older than you guys' kids are, and I can tell you that when they leave, it's the worst day of your life. Yeah, because it's suddenly silent. My youngest son was the last one. He came back for a little while before he moved out. And when he left, I swear to God I didn't I could tell you all over again. I couldn't stop crying. I really it was so sad for me that the last one they're never gonna live with me again. And when he left, um Fleetwood Mac did a song called Landslide. Yeah. I tell this to everybody. I played that song hundreds of times in my car and <laughs> cried the whole way, you know, going to wherever I was going until I got it out of my system. It just you know, when they leave, they're gone. Well, my kids went they get to camp and and for a month, back.
1: And, and I my, saw you. All my oldest come. son went to Thailand to do service work for three weeks. He oh, it was just amazing. But this was the first time in thirteen years I was alone in my house. It was sensational. I didn't cry at all. But it, you knew they were coming back. I knew they were coming back, and I hadn't been alone in so long. Oh, I had parties and dinner parties and hours and hours of silence. It was sensational. People were like, "Do you want to go out? No, I want to stay home and be alone.
0: You know, when I think about you in terms of knowing you as well as I do, I am so proud of the life that you are living. You're really living a wonderful, incredible life. so i'm very I feel so lazy. I don't I can't even imagine that but I think it's amazing what you've done. You've touched the lives of thousands and thousands of people and it's fantastic.
1: I wish we could get some people to step out and do more good things now. I think now more than any other time in my lifetime. I would say since since I was a teenager. We really need people to be active we in a different way.
0: I, um, uh two weeks ago, Leanne and I interviewed Jerry Casale, who was the founder of Devo, mm-hmm. the band Devo. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the 60s mm-hmm. and how together the young people were united in their voices. Mm-hmm. And um, he happened to be at Kent State when the armed guards shot into a crowd of students, of unarmed students, and two of his friends were killed in that experience and you think about how you could have done that how could the national guard have had armed weapons shooting at unarmed students right but it was that that whole story was so fucked up on so many levels. But the point that I... But there's I'm, so
1: much of this type of crisis every time you turn around. But there's around no now,
0: unification. There's no, no, you know, you know young people in those days, we were un... I was too young, you were too young, you were too young, you but were too young. We didn't really... we lived and at they the didn't outer have edges computers.
1: Of it. It's like, how can you not be unified now when it's you have every possibility to unify? And the apathy is just it's mind-boggling to I me. I think people think if they post something it means something.
2: I think that that has absolutely muted action for sure.
1: Yeah people I think people think not. that is action. I, I do. I too. think people think if they text you that they've talked
0: to you and you haven't. No my, my children say when I want something they say well I texted you I don't read my texts. <laughs> so, or, you know I left to like make a point of reading them.
1: Yeah but, or when I get To that, yeah, but it's not foremost in my mind. Because you texted me, you've handled whatever it is that you think (laughs) you do. It sent you a text. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, but I'm not standing by waiting for your text or carrying my phone around
0: at home. No, like pick up the phone, act like a human. It'll be nice when um, they understand that that's not the best form of communication.
1: About people who come to your house and text and say they're outside instead of ringing the bell. Right. I'm like, well, you can
0: stand there all day, all day.
1: Because I do not understand this behavior, I'm outside (laughs) with a text.
2: I'm knocking on the door,
1: and I or I left. I texted, and you didn't respond. You're an idiot. I'm so glad you left. I don't even know what to say about that. I'm outside. Good Good. for you. How are you liking it out there? Um, Anytime you want to ring the doorbell, you can come in.
2: It does feel like just generally in this matter of like manners that people are lost in the wilderness about what it means to like you call somebody on in certain situations. You need to use your voice to have a conversation and have a communication with somebody. And I have sons. So I'm like, I'm very I've ridiculously high standards for like knocking on the
1: door, saying your name. Looking someone in the eye, yeah, all
2: that stuff—it's like a crisis. Yeah. I think that's a crisis. But I,
1: I think the lo- lack of civility is astounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what—and the presumption and the entitlement mm-hmm. is so shocking.
0: Well, we're not raising our children that no, way. No, we're not. None of us are. So there you go. We have nine sons between us. Oh yeah. Okay, Sharon, thank you for coming. Thank you for having it me. It was a true yes. joy. Really, thank you. delightful. Next time, you'll meet Adrienne Gary, a successful entertainment executive who spent her career developing human resources into cohesive and successful organizations. For over 25 years, Adrian has worked closely with CEOs and business leaders at the top entertainment and media companies in the world, including Fox, Warner Brothers, and Miramax. She was responsible for all aspects of organizational design, compensation, talent management, and strategy. At Fox, she was named one of the most powerful women in the entertainment industry. As global head of human resources at Warner Brothers Entertainment Group, she was responsible for building their human capital organization throughout the world. Founder of Gary Consulting, Adrienne provides her expertise on human capital. Her clients include startup organizations and established companies assessing their business needs to effectively align the organization with their goals. Her people-first philosophy brings dynamic teams together to operate at the highest level and build a climate that breeds success. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with Adrienne Gary on the next Say It Forward.
2: Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.